thank you for tuning in to the My OT Journey podcast. My name is Michael Roth, and today I'm joined with Brittany Perez. Brittany is the Director of Outreach and Engagement at the Center for Inclusive Design and Environmental Access, or the IDEA Center, at the University of Buffalo, and works as part of an interdisciplinary team to advance equity and inclusion in design. I'd also like to extend a personal thank you for joining me today, Brittany. I got to see your presentation titled Strengthening Universal Design Education and Opportunities for Occupational Therapists at the NYSOTA Annual Conference. And I can tell you that not only are you an expert in your field, but you're also an engaging speaker that I'm sure will motivate our listeners to bring universal design into their own practices. So without further ado, thank you for joining me on the podcast, Brittany. Thanks for having me, Michael. Of course. So I know we talked about this a little bit before I officially started the podcast, but for the listeners out there, tell me what's going on in Buffalo. How's the weather? <laughs> it's pretty snowy. We actually have had kind of a slow winter with uh, snow accumulations here in Buffalo, but the last couple of days seem to be making up for it. But we're, <laughs> we've all been kind of waiting and ready for it. You know, it is wintertime after all. Mm. Uh, I received my undergraduate education at the State University of New York at Geneseo. And while it's not so far north as Buffalo, I did get a little bit of a taste of those western New York winters and how harsh they can be. And as I was doing some of the uh, research before the podcast, I found that it was interesting to know that when you were you know, growing up, you grew up in the sunshine, say, in Florida. And I'm not too familiar with Florida, but from television and media, I know that snow days are few and far between down there. So I was hoping that you could share a little bit of your experiences growing up in Florida, specifically what experiences you had that prompted you to attend Washington University in St. Louis for psychology and or experiences that helped you develop the resiliency that today helps you survive those harsh buffalo winters. <laughs> sure. Well, you're definitely spot on. No snow days in Florida, but we had our fair share of hurricane days to look forward to uh, <laughs> while I was living down there. But my whole family is from Tampa, Florida. Um, and these days, um, people are done with school and whatnot. And actually, um, all the other Perez's are, are there in Tampa. So um, I, I get to go visit quite often. And I love visiting Florida. Um, but Ever since I left for college, I've, I've always lived in places that have all four seasons, uh, mm -hmm. which has been really nice. Uh, but, it, but it is nice to escape these Buffalo winters and visit my family uh, every once in a while in the sunshine. When I was in high school in Florida, I started working at the YMCA during the summers uh, at, um, with our adaptive summer camp program at the YMCA down there. And that was a summer camp for children who had developmental disabilities. And I'd say this is kind of, you know, where my interest sort of started, you know, growing and thinking about what I might do, what kind of, I might want to study in college. Um, I really, I loved working in that program. I continued to work in it all throughout high school, through all my breaks and over the summers and things like that. And while I was working there, you know, I got exposed. The children would um, be pulled out of camp sometimes to go to physical or occupational or speech therapy. So I kind of got a peripheral exposure to, to those careers or, or to those therapists who would come and work with the kids. But I, I really, you know, wasn't exactly sure, you know, what they were doing with those therapists at that time, but just kind of knew that was part of their daily routines and activities. Um, and, and when I finished high school, I kind of 
I thought, well, I'm, I'd like to go to college, and I, I kind of had my mind made up that I would go on this pre-medical path um, with an interest in cognition and neuroscience and maybe learning a little bit more about, you know, how our brains work and maybe how the brains work with different developmental disabilities and things like that. Um, so that's kind of what started my interest in these areas, but... Once I went to school and, and learned a little bit more about all the different things that, and different paths that I could take um, to, to take interest in this, I kind of changed paths and, and went down that psychology pathway um, mm. once I got to college, yeah. And I think I want to circle back a little bit because I found with uh, a lot of the professionals that I've interviewed that a lot of occupational therapists seem to go that pre-med track that they have in their minds, you know, I, myself included, when I went, you know, for my undergraduate education, I was pre-med in English literature. So I thought that I was going into medicine. I love neuroscience. I love the like endocrinology, gastroenterology. But then when I got exposed to occupational therapy more, I found out like, oh, this is, you know, what sparks my interests and my passions. Um, can you tell me a little bit, you know, maybe do like a little mental journey back and think as to why you thought the pre-med track was the way to go? Just because I know there are a lot of listeners that may be in high school who are thinking pre-med uh, and could, you know, gain a lot from your experience retrospectively. Sure. So for me, my older brother, he went on a pre-medical pathway and did end up becoming a physician. Um, and I, I think at that point, I really thought, you know, if I'm interested in health and behaviors and things like that, that maybe my role could be part of coming up with therapies or cures. You know, my perspective wasn't as broad going into college as it became and kind of learning more about myself as a person and really, you know, what I was good at and what my talents and my skills could really contribute to. Um, I took a class in college called Disability, Quality of Life, and Community Responsibility. And this is an undergraduate American Studies course, you know, kind of general liberal arts course, um, but it was taught by an occupational therapist. Her name is Kathy Kneetman. She, she teaches in the occupational therapy program at WashU. And the class really, you know, broadened my perspectives of, you know, maybe maybe it wasn't so much the, the science and the actual physiology that I was interested in, but more of the relationships and experiences that I had had um, working with the kids in that summer camp and just in general. You know, I've always been an incredibly social person and, you know, got really involved in lots of student activities and things like that. So she helped me kind of see that maybe my, my skills and interests, but also combined with my interest in health science, might be a good fit with occupational therapy um, and that there's so much more to, to working with people than, you know, just the medical perspectives or um, the, kind of that medical model of, of we are our health conditions. So started gravitating, yeah, in that direction. I think you bring up such a good point because it is so important. Uh, I found both in my personal experience and when talking to others about their undergraduate experience to be open to new perspectives. Uh, when you had that kind of mentorship and uh, were shown the path to OT, was jumping on that OT ride and that OT journey an easy thing for you? Or did it take a little bit of time to kind of parse out that that was a field that, you know, was something that you can go into and, and was a passion 
I just wonder how how easy it was for you to shift your perspective from pre-med to occupational therapy. Yeah, I, I didn't officially do that or make any decisions until after graduating undergrad. You know, when, when I switched my path from the pre-med pathway, um, looking at psychology and education studies as my primary major and minor areas, I really just kind of stuck with those and focused on my undergraduate experience. Um, I participated in a lot of student government activities while I was in school, so I really just kind of focused on being an undergrad and once I finished school I still wasn't even even though I had a great interest in occupational therapy I wasn't even positive at that point in time that you know I I wanted to make an investment in graduate school Um, so I, I took a year off and I did work in a research job and we can talk a little bit about that um, as well but I just wanted to take some time to really think about that decision um, before applying to occupational therapy school and, and knowing that that was the right you know career pathway for me. Mm. And I, I think that'd be a good good thing to talk a little bit about. Uh, first, I want to ask when you decided to take a year off and kind of work and figure things out. Um, I know that there are are plenty of students out there who you know, are nervous about taking a little bit of time away from school to explore other opportunities and figure out what they want to do. Was was that experience similar to yours? Or did you uh, know that I need to take some time, I need to figure it out, and it's okay that I do that? Yeah, maybe reflecting on it at the time, I was probably a little bit more nervous about it. Uh, you know, because graduating, I knew I needed to then find a job if I wasn't going to immediately enroll in the next chapter of of school. So maybe I was a little nervous at that time about it, but I really think it's a it's a wise decision if you have the ability to do so because you know any any time that you can spend on personal reflection or maybe getting a little bit of exposure to different work industries or work environments can give you some insight especially if you know the next step is a major financial investment can give you some insight on how you can best make that investment in yourself uh, moving forward. And so, you know, I, I worked a research job during that year and I fell in love with, you know, the research process and, you know, was good at it. And I enjoyed meeting the people who would come and participate in our research program. Um, and I think that that also helped me to feel a lot more comfortable with the research process in graduate school, kind of maybe prepared me a little bit with, with some exposure to, to research before even starting um, and getting more into that in school. And now uh, you did choose to pursue um, a doctorate program at Washington University. I'm wondering whether or not your research experience kind of pushed you to pursue a clinical doctorate over just uh, you know, a master's in occupational therapy. A little bit. I, I think it's a little bit of both the things we're talking about. So, you know, enrolling in the program, I still wasn't incredibly clear about what my OT path or career was going to look like. Um, and my understanding at that point in time was that the clinical doctorate degree would give me a little bit of extra time to sort of develop an area of interest or an area of expertise. Um, and, you know, we were we were afforded some opportunities to specialize or do a little bit more intensive research program while we were in school and have some smaller, more seminar-based classes that I really thought I would value in the program. So I went in that direction because I still wasn't totally clear about um, what I wanted to do with occupational therapy. You know, maybe if I were in the position where I knew I wanted to be a clinician in a specific setting with a specific population, 
um, you know, the master's program would have been a great fit for me. Mm. And so you you take this big leap to uh, receive a clinical doctorate. You apply to school. Um, I'm assuming that, that you applied once and got in, or did you uh, have to make multiple applications? I, I mean, multiple applications to different schools, um, but I did apply after a year of working um, in the research program. Mm. So you take this big leap, you know, relatively quick, It's uh, as far as, you know, just a gap year goes. And then uh, you get into your first, you know, round of coursework, your first semester of coursework. How did the actual doctoral program uh, meet, exceed, or kind of uh, change your expectations? So to start the program, actually, we took exactly the same classes, and we were in exactly the same program as the master's students in the master's program. And that was... um, pretty much the same for the first two years of the program. We had a couple of extra classes during the second year of the program, and then we were able to get a little bit more involved and kind of have a little more autonomy with our research projects. So um, those extended into the third year of school. Um, But then it was an entire extra academic year of school plus an additional um, what they called an apprenticeship or um, kind of capstone experience to the doctorate program on top of the two level two field works. Um, so it didn't start, you know, kind of going on a, a diverted path until after that second year of school. We, we had the clinical education pretty much the same as master's students um, throughout the first part of the program. And then we were able to do a little bit more research and kind of focus on teaching and we had to focus on grant writing and um, developing our research skills in that third year. So uh, then your first couple of uh, courses must have been, you know, a lot of people attending the lectures, right? Like the uh, the class sizes, it was a joint master's and doctoral program, or was it still pretty small? Uh, it was larger. So I want to say that our class sizes were between 75 and 80 people um, for the first two years. And then, yes, our doctoral class size the third year uh, was just under 20 people, I believe. You said earlier that you were a a very social person. Uh, Do you think having such a large class size was beneficial to you when you first started at the program? I think there's pros and cons in an occupational therapy program to have large class sizes. So to me, you know, having more people in your program, it it means a lot more people to learn from their life experiences and um, what why they got into occupational therapy and what their stories are. But certainly occupational therapy is a really hands-on, you know, profession where you're learning a lot of skills that require one-on-one attention to learn them. And that can get a little bit crowded um, when you have a large program and you're, you know, need to break into small groups to learn and different things like that. Um, But overall, you know, I really enjoyed having a bit larger of a program and learning from a lot of people. Mm. And you continued when you were in your doctoral program to be a part of the student government, right? I did. Uh, during graduate school, somehow still found a way <laughs> to, <laughs> to um, get involved in student activities. Um, I laughed because probably um, if anyone from undergraduate school ever hears this, they would just roll their eyes and say, of course you did. Um, I, You know, I think it's it's important, you know, if you if you want to have a say or contribute to the way things work in a program and things like that, you have to be willing to give your time and um, commitment 
to, to helping the program improve itself and, um, you know, create services and things like that for your peers. So, um, yeah, that's how I felt like I could give up my time and, and make contributions to the program in that way. And I also got involved with the Assembly of Student Delegates with the AOTA, or the American Occupational Therapy Association, um, which is our professional organization. And I thought that was, you know, kind of an interesting way to learn a little bit more about what it might mean to be an occupational therapist after, you know, after you're out of your graduate program um, and learning about what's the value of, of being a part of the AOTA. Um, it's obviously much more affordable to be a member as a student um, and then to, to learn, you know, what, what's the value of that membership moving forward. Um, that, that was a nice way to learn that so that I, I could understand if I wanted to do that as a professional. Mm, and, and I definitely want to circle back to that uh, later in the podcast, but focusing uh, specifically on maybe the needs of students who are in OT school now and are interested in being part of their student government or uh, ASD rep, but are nervous about the time commitment and whether or not they can handle it. What pieces of advice would you give to students like like that uh, to maybe manage their time or make it work? Oh, time management in school, I think, is a challenge, you know, for most people. And, you know, I think that one thing we have to remember, at, we're learning about occupational therapy, we're learning about creating balance, and part of what we're learning is teaching other people to, to have, you know, work-life balance or um, think about their, their health and quality of life um, in, in regards to how we work with clients. Um, and sometimes I think we lose sight of that in our own lives um, and in the way that, you know, academic programs are fairly rigorous. They require a lot of studying and hard work to get through. But I think that we have to remember that, you know, becoming an occupational therapist isn't just about you know, what you learn in the books. It's about the relationships you build, about um, learning about yourself as a therapist. You know, the the idea of therapeutic use of self. I mean, I can't I can't emphasize enough the importance of becoming very comfortable with who you are as a clinician and as a therapist while you're in school, because that that will serve you so much on field works and and in your and, you know following career searches. Um, but all of those other experiences that you might have, whether they are field work or volunteer-based or uh, activities within the school program, all of what you learn being a part of those uh, experiences are going to be helpful moving forward. You know, think about everything you might do related to a student government or ASD, delegate, those kinds of roles are really similar kinds of roles if you went and worked in a community organization or a not-for-profit organization related to program development, um, grant writing, budget allocations, those are really important skills to, to have an understanding of and get some experience with. And doing so in a fun way as part of your program, I think, is a really great way to get those experiences. Yeah, I think you bring up a great point because, you know, we look at our AOTA mission and slogan that our goal is to help people live their lives to the fullest. And I think it's really important for students to recognize that if joining these organizations and being part of the school government and learning about, uh, you know, how to how to work within a nonprofit system with a team is important to you and makes your life full, then you should do it because that's what we're eventually going to teach our teach our clients to do. 
I know that it can be challenging. I, for one, am uh, definitely guilty of the 15-hour school days where I'm just head in the books and kind of lose myself and, you know, have to check back in and make sure that I'm doing that self-care that's so important. But we really should focus in the program in our programs to live a full life in addition to learning about OT because, you know, that's what we're going to be working with people in the future to do. Yeah. And Michael, I mean, I'm sure you can speak to this too, but I, I, to this day, remind myself, you know, if I don't make time for exercise and sleep and doing some of the things that I like to do, um, if, I, if all I do is work, I'm eventually going to feel that burnout. I'm going to get tired and I'm not going to be able to perform my best, which means, you know, maybe I'm not doing work at my best, you know, um, quality of work that I could be doing or would my clients suffer if, you know, I'm not being the best clinician that I can be. And all those other pieces of life are really important to make sure that we maintain health and, um, and the energy and, and motivation to continue to do the things that we're participating in too. And, and that should go for students as well. Mm-hmm. That's something that it seems like every interview that I do gets brought up is that, you know, burnout is such a significant problem in our field. And part of that is just because we're in a in a caregiving profession that uh, all the occupational therapists that I've met or the vast majority of occupational therapists that I've met are genuinely caring people who want the best for their clients. Um, and sometimes that can get in the way of of you know, taking care of yourself and giving what's the best for you. Uh, And it's I'm glad that you bring that up because it's really important to emphasize the fact that personal, physical, mental health is a priority uh, because without it, you're not going to give great care to your clients. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about what kinds of activities you did in your graduate experience that helped you maintain that balance? Hmm, Let's see. So outside of um, participating in some of the, the student government. I, I was part of the social committee um, in our student, pro, student government program, so helping to plan with um, some of our social engagements and bringing together not just students from our program, but sometimes um, interprofessional kinds of programming as well. Um, and my friends and I, we tried to get out in the city as well. So living in St. Louis, St. Louis is an amazing place to live and there was so much to be done. And oftentimes you can find yourself, you know, hold up in the library or in your apartment studying or at the school um, and kind of miss out on what's going on in your city and getting to know the people in your community. So we tried, you know, to, to not just go out and socialize, but um, use our parks that were in St. Louis, um, get out and go to the parks, try new places to eat, um, you know, and just, and tried to really have um, an engaged life within the city as well, outside of the program. Mm, and that's such a that's such a good uh, piece of advice that to get engaged in your community and explore the area around your school. Uh, so I'm a student at uh, Stony Brook, but where our campus is in Southampton, and uh, it is nice to be able to you know be a 10 minute drive to beaches on both sides and you know parks and wineries and uh, oftentimes we'll go and we'll go to the beach and we'll study for an hour and then we'll have you know some time to hang out and have fun. Uh, it it really keeps from getting exhausted and burnt out and and you know mentally tired. So I'm glad that you shared some of those experiences with me. 
So when you got into uh, the, the doctorate program and as you're going through, were there any courses that really stuck out to you as ones that gave you that aha moment, that occupational therapy was what you wanted to do and what you wanted to go into? Yeah, I could probably pinpoint a couple here. So um, a class that stands out to me just as uh, outstanding experience uh, was our gross anatomy course. And I don't work as a clinician today, so, you know, you might think, oh, why did, why did she care so much about gross anatomy? Um, and, and she works in the research and environments world. But um, just having, you know, that, that experience and that exposure to really understanding how our bodies work, um, the gratitude I have for the people and the families who donated, you know, themselves to, to be a learning a tool for me and my classmates. Um, I just, you know, that experience I can't, I can't replicate or replace and um, really was a, a valuable part of my OT education. Um, but then maybe more related to what led me down uh, my career path, um, we had an environment in assistive technologies courses uh, in the course of the master's curriculum. Um, and that's kind of where I, I got my first exposure to this concept of universal design. Um, we had a guest lecture for the environments class who sort of gave that 45-minute introduction to this topic that I thought, wow, you know, this is really an opportunity to apply how we think as occupational therapists but on a little bit more of a macro scale, thinking about product design, thinking about the design of our communities, um, the buildings that we spend time in, and things like that. Where, whereas I think a lot of our environments talk sometimes uh, stops after we talk about the home environment. But this was really interesting to me to think about, you know, what about when you leave the front door to your house? You know, what can we do as occupational therapists to um, to apply our lens of task analysis and um, environmental analysis and, and really understand how people get around in their communities. Um, so those courses stand out to me and kind of are what drew me towards this concept of, of inclusive design and, and community participation. And I did have the opportunity to be a part of a, a research lab at WashU that was called the Disability and Community Participation Research Office. Uh, my research mentor was Dr. David Gray um, and uh, Jessica Dashner, who's still there at the program. And they, their research was, you know, really focused on what people are doing in in their lives that involve, you know, social social opportunities, recreation, uh, are getting to and from healthcare appointments, or thinking about what we do in our employment. Um, and I was really interested and fascinated by this idea that OTs could play a role um, sort of at that community scale. Um, so those things stand out to me as experiences during school that kind of led me in the path to learn how might I be able to do this as a professional. One course that stands out um, from that third year, um, we had the opportunity to have a seminar course with Dr. Carolyn Baum, who was the program director at the time when I was in the program. And for the entire year, so at one class each semester, we developed occupational therapy practice models for our own specific populations of interests and kind of 
um, clinical areas of interest, and we were able to, to learn directly from Dr. Baum and have her give us feedback on our practice models and the, the lens from which we were, you know, um, conducting our research and um, thinking about uh, being occupational therapists, and that was just a really special opportunity uh, while I was in school that made me think a little bit differently about what my what my path might look like um, if if I wasn't to go um, the traditional clinical route. And I can hear your enthusiasm through those stories, and it's uh, enthusiasm that I definitely share. Uh, I think that it's inspiring to hear occupational therapists that look at occupational therapy not just in the clinic or in the hospital or in the school, but as a profession that is working towards helping people live the highest quality and most full life that they can. And sometimes that means working with the community and working with designers to make sure that uh, individuals have access to all those occupations that they know and love. We at Stony Brook do have a, you know, like kind of a little quick and dirty universal design course. Um, It's a little bit more focused on the practical application of universal design, either through functional capacity evaluations or using anthropometric measurements or uh, how to adapt different devices for children. Um, But in our discussions with our classmates, I know a couple of my classmates have a difficult time wrapping their head around universal design as a within OT scope of practice and not the domain of architects or engineers or social workers. Um, what kind of insight can you give those kind of people who are just confused as to how occupational therapists ha- uh, fit into that role and maybe fit into that role uh, better or differently than other professionals that can work in similar areas? Wow, this is one of probably the most frequent questions that I get um, from occupational therapy students or even OTs who are just kind of looking to see, like, what can my role be in this field? And to me, the, the opportunities are endless. Um, and I think first, it's thinking about the language that we use. So um, universal design is a concept that started to become popular and used more often in the 1980s um, with Ron Mace and even the director at the Idea Center, Ed Steinfeld, and their contemporaries who were really pioneers in accessibility research and thinking really, really progressively about the fact that we, we can't just make minimum standards. It can't just be about, you know, the rules tell us to be more inclusive. We, we have to be better than that. You know, we really need to strive for a design process and a way of design thinking that uh, serves more people, that serves everybody, um, and is considerate of the diverse spectrum of, of different abilities and cognition and sensory abilities really across the board. And so the way that they started thinking about universal design, I, I do think, you know, at the beginning, the terms used and, and the principles and things like that really spoke to the design professions. Um, but I think as, as time went on and as research continued in this field, universal design today and how the Idea Center defines it is that it's really process-based and that it's this process that can enable and empower diverse populations by improving human performance, health and wellness, and social participation. And so when I think of universal design like that, I mean, as an occupational therapist, I'm hard-pressed not to say that 
isn't that exactly what we do? <laughs> you know, our, our call to action um, as occupational therapists is, is pretty much in line um, or aligned with, with what universal design is. And we can think about applying universal design and um, what we have now is, is eight goals of universal design that are all grounded in different bodies of literature. I'm so excited to hear about your class that talks about anthropometry. And um, these are all areas that are so important to think about when we're thinking about universal design. And, and we can really apply these fields of science and um, these areas of thinking to much more than just physical design of the environment. We can apply this to product design. We can apply this to service design. Um, and, and I think that that usually resonates a lot um, when I give lectures about universal design or, or trainings. Um, you know, when we use this lens, when we think uh, more inclusively, we can really improve the way that we deliver client service. Um, so, so a lot of people think, well, I work as a clinician. I don't work in an environment field or in a field where I can do this. But, but I really think that there's opportunity to use the lens of inclusive design, you know, throughout throughout the spectrum of practice um, for occupational therapists, and um, a lot of opportunity to also leverage what we know as occupational therapists to contribute to design fields, design professions, urban planning fields, engineering fields, um, and really um, work with those professionals who, are, who may also be working towards the very same goals, just maybe using a different lexicon. So, so for me, sometimes it, it is a little bit about the language that we use and, and perhaps the lens um, in which we think we can apply universal design theory and practice. And I think that's so important to state because it's easy uh, for occupational therapists or even, you know, occupational therapy students like myself to forget that the perspective that we take as occupational therapists is shifted based on the education that we got. We we think about things like, uh, you know, PEO models or MOHO or those kind of uh, kinds of frames of reference and models of practice so often that they become ingrained into the way that we view the world. And because that perspective is so intrinsic to us, it's difficult for us to understand how it can have value. You know, it's easy to assume that everyone has that perspective and they don't necessarily have that. Um, and I'll also bring maybe like a, a little example of something that we're doing in our coursework. Um, but our courses is definitely focused on ways that we can impact our clients directly. Uh, so one of the projects that our universal design lab instructor, uh, Chris Murata, is having us do is develop a, a tool or a occupation-based object uh, that's been modified to fit somebody who has a acute or chronic uh, injury that causes a disability. Uh, so for example, I'm making, uh, because I'm an avid gardener, a uh, grow table with a adjustable grow light, uh, but the table I'm modifying for an individual with a spinal cord injury. Uh, so I have a design for a bar table that's four feet high so they don't have to bend to uh, interact with any of the plants a adjustable light fixture on pulleys that they can pull down rather than lifting uh, so they can start their seeds indoors. And I think the project itself is really, as a student, giving me the opportunity to look and say, hey, 
I want my clients to be able to engage in occupations that they love, but they might not have $1,200 to spend on an indoor grow table that's modified for their injury, you know, but I know I can make a two by four table for 25 bucks and I can buy a light fixture and PVC and make it for 30 bucks so they can engage in their occupations for, you know, 50 to $75 rather than, you know, $1,000, $2,000, And that's something that I don't think I'd be able to do if I didn't have the occupational therapy education that I'm gaining. Wow. I mean, what an incredible project, first of all, that that sounds amazing. Um, And a, a few things really stand out to me related to universal design. So, in the eight goals of universal design, the, the eighth one is cultural or contextual appropriateness. And you hit the nail on the head saying, you know, we, we want to create environments and products and activities where a broad spectrum of people can participate. And we need to use resources that are appropriate and available and accessible um, for people to, to be able to, to do that. There can't be a barrier to access related to, to cost and, um, and, and things like that. You know, a lot of times universal design gets criticized as being very expensive to, to have and um, be a part of or to implement. And I think that you have just illustrated so beautifully an example of, no, absolutely not. We can think of sensible solutions um, that, you know, your project it may have a client with a spinal cord injury at the core focus of the project, but I can, you know, name a handful of other populations who would really benefit from both the adjustable table or the the higher table and the adjustable light. Um, maybe someone who has difficulty bending or kneeling all the way to the ground to do gardening in the ground, um, or someone who, who would have um, limitations with reach range or the inability to you know turn on a light that was way above their heads or things like that. And, I mean, that, that really embodies this idea of universal design. And, and one of the goals of universal design is personalization. So that's where that, that idea of accessibility comes in or, or making a, a specific modica- modification to personalize it um, to meet the needs of a specific person. Um, but if we can design environments and products like you're doing that would really meet a, a broad spectrum of people's needs, we might be able to minimize a little bit of that need for modification um, or personalization. And if there is that need, it'd be really easy to do um, for that person when we use that lens. So kudos. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. And it's it's definitely fun to do because it's something that, you know, I can have and, and I can use it. And, you know, it's it, it has definitely changed my perspective to uh, the kind of things that occupational therapists can do. Um, I was wondering maybe, so I gave an example from, you know, just coursework that I did. Uh, Could you give maybe a couple of examples from uh, the universal design fieldworks that you were a part of where you saw, you know, OT in action or universal design in action? Sure. So when I went to CATIA for short, that's the center at Georgia Tech, I mentioned I'd taken a course and kind of been exposed to universal design as a concept, but not really knowing a lot about what I could do as an OT um, in that field. And what was striking about this, this center in our fieldwork database was that Georgia Tech does not have an occupational therapy program uh, at their school. CATIA is a collaboration um, between, I believe, 
industrial design and engineering programs and architecture. Um, and what they had learned, what the director had learned, um, is that it's valuable to include occupational therapists in this work uh, because of our skill sets of assessing the environment and task analysis and working with people and understanding how they interact with the environments around them. And so they employed occupational therapists on their research team, um, which was how I was able to kind of connect with them as a group. And when I went down there, there was a couple of really interesting things happening. So one, there was a course where the students in industrial engineering, I believe it was, they were tasked with going with the occupational therapist into a person's home um, for the home visit that the OT was doing a home assessment. And the OT conducted a home assessment as an OT would, and the engineering students we're really listening and, and trying to really hone in on what were the needs and goals of the people living in these homes with the um, task or the assignment to develop and design a product that might enable them to do some of these tasks more easily. Um, and then in their course, they'd work on the product design and development, and the occupational therapist would come in and do consultations with the students and check in um, with the designs, but also communicate with the clients um, who are also able to get some exposure to what these different products were and give feedback. So it's kind of that human-centered design approach as well. And I just really was blown away by the um, really collaborative nature and, and use of skills, um, the, the intelligence and the skill set of engineers to be able to create products um, that, that really work, that really had um, purpose, but also to then learn from the occupational therapists and, and the clients themselves about how do we make these practical, how do we make them, um, whether they needed to be low-cost, no-cost, or low-tech, um, or, you know, is there opportunity to kind of be more robust with the technology use and things like that. So that really stood out to me as, you know, kind of my first glimpse into this multidisciplinary collaborative nature um, and the important contributions that occupational therapists could make to this work. Mm, and I think that's such, that's such a good example to use because uh, what you're demonstrating is that, you know, you say these engineering students, they have uh, an incredible skill set and uh, that's valuable in its own right uh, and can do incredible things, but occupational therapists can still add value to that skill set and uh, offer them a perspective on disability that they might not have had otherwise. Um, so I think that's a really great example to bring up. I think it really drills down the point that OTs, you know, really have a stake in this field so so one way that I think this can be illustrated um, with with the work that I'm doing at the idea center and um, being exposed to this when when I started there during my doctoral apprenticeship um, is really beginning to understand how different design professionals like architects um, industrial engineers human factors engineers were working together with occupational therapists to think about different things like product design, home design, um, and even, you know, as, as broad as community environments and thinking about sidewalks and streets and um, different types of public buildings, um, I really saw that there was a place at the table for me um, to be able to contribute, you know, what it was what it's like working with diverse populations, engaging diverse um, community organization partners so that people from the community can be 
you know, sitting at the table as well, making sure that their perspectives and their voices are part of the design process. Um, occupational therapists have the skill sets to be able to create um, really engaging and productive and motivating environments to engage the community in this process um, and make sure that they are represented in, in design and, and policy-making processes. Um, and I really have kind of found my niche in that area, um, and, and I think that it makes for an incredible kind of team approach to, to looking at inclusive design. Mm, and I think that team in approach is, is so important. I am I'm curious, just uh, looking at the um, eight goals of universal design uh, that the Idea Center has has put out. Um, were you a part in that construction of those those goals? So those eight goals were developed by Jordana Maisel and Ed Steinfeld uh, in about 2012. So it was a little. Um, before I came to the Idea Center, um, but really where they were headed um, with those concepts was thinking about the evolution of, of research in the field of universal design, um, kind of going back to what we were talking about before with the lexicon and language, realizing that you know, there's a lot more people than just the design professions who are looking at, at these concepts and, and have expertise and research um, behind, behind this work that we should be looking to. You know, not, not one single person is an expert in all of these different areas. When we look at those eight goals that complement um, the definition of universal design, they are all grounded in different areas of literature. So with body fit, it's looking at anthropometry. Um, with comfort, it's looking at things like ergonomics uh, or biomechanics. And, you know, we could go on and on um, down through the eight goals. But, but that was really the purpose of, of kind of hashing out those various areas that we should consider when we're thinking about universal design and thinking about it as goal-oriented. So it's an ongoing process. I can't name a perfectly designed product or a perfectly designed building that works for 100% of the population. There's always going to be a need for modification or um, maybe adaptation um, for, for specific needs. Um, but we can certainly continue to learn and try and, you know, keep improving. And I think that's one of the biggest differences of how the field of universal design has evolved over time. And it's really process and goal oriented. I think that's an important point to bring up too, because, uh, you know, I, I talked a little bit about my undergraduate experience as an English lit major and, uh, I am in love with words. I'm kind of just a giant nerd in general, but I love, uh, you know, words and jargon and, the idea that the lexicon around universal design is shifting is proof positive that occupational therapy has a seat at the table. Um, I We just learned about Ronald Mace's universal design features, um, and the language that Ronald Mace uses is like tolerance of error, low physical effort, uh, size and space appropriate for use, which when compared with um, the, the Idea Center's universal design goals made in 2012, um, you know, they use words like body fit, comfort, awareness, understanding, wellness, social integration, personalization, and cultural appropriateness. That's all language that 
in my mind, feels more interdisciplinary. It feels more uh, couched in in process and uh, holistic perspective. Um, and I and I really think OT is is a profession that you know is is so firmly based in looking at things holistically and looking at the whole process that uh, they can they they definitely have a seat in the universal design table. To kind of transition a little bit, I'm wondering. How has, when we're speaking of advancements, this just kind of popped into my head, how has advancements and technology changed the field of universal design? I think that's a really good question and something that we talk about quite often. So I want to, you know, think about that from a couple of perspectives. So first, uh, I think we need to make sure that we always consider that even though there's a lot of advancement and changes in technology, that doesn't always mean that um, our communities and our clients have access to those changes in technology. So we, we do want to be considerate that we don't you know, move our fields of research so quickly forward or move our, um, our practice models or our interventions to only rely on the newest, latest, greatest technologies because we might be leaving behind people who, who aren't able to afford them or who don't have access to them. Um, and, and I think that's an important consideration just to, to keep in our minds as we talk about this topic. Um, and that's not to say that I'm not a big fan of advancements in technology. I think that um, as we move forward into, you know, this sort of arena of smart technologies that are all integrated and work together. I mean, when I, I wasn't in school that long ago, but when I was in school, we were learning about environmental controls and, you know, all the different gadgets and technologies you might have to have in your home to make it a quote-unquote smart home. And today, some of those very expensive, what were referred to as assistive technologies for people with disabilities are integrated into everyday devices that are available, um, you know, to a broad population of people. And that's incredible. I think that that is uh, opening up, uh, you know, ways in which people can use technology to stay more independent in their homes or, you know, have more independence in their schedules by setting reminders or using technology for, you know, different kinds of support systems that they might need in their daily lives. I mean, I, I find myself using these features, you know, at, that are just available to me on, on smartphone technology or smart home technology, um, and people see the real benefits. And really, this is a, a really nice example of, universal design. So I'm thinking about technologies that, you know, when they were originally created to say, um, to control the air in a space so that our, our temperature and climate control, um, you, you would need a piece of technology for that. And then you would need something else to control the lights, to dim them or brighten them or um, something else to be able to help with opening and closing doors. Um, the fact that, you know, we see people using smart home technology and doing this for their convenience um, and because it's kind of cool um, to be able to do some of these things in your home and not maybe not even considering the fact that this level of engagement with technology can really enable people to live more independently without um, 
as many supports in their home, um, it opens up a whole lot of possibilities for the future um, about how advancements in technology, you know, can be helpful. And, you know, field, there's whole fields of telehealth that are showing that, you know, we can really be much more connected and plugged into people who are homebound or live in rural communities and have difficult access to healthcare environments because of advancements in technology. It's really quite incredible. And I think that brings up a, a great point that, uh, you know, is, is definitely timely for me. For our labs, we went through all the accessibility features that are now being designed in, you know, MacBooks and with Windows, that Windows has a whole ease of access settings that you can adjust your computer so that you can have sticky keys or to work with a switch or to move your mouse with a keyboard, to have an on-screen keyboard that you can use with touchscreen. Like... There's so many amazing accessibility features that are being built into technology, you know, just as part of the technology, not as an additional add-on or hardware that it definitely is exciting. And it, it, it really shows that uh, these big name companies like Apple and Microsoft are looking at universal design and inclusive design as part of their business model and not just a sub company. Smart business practice, right? I mean, mm-hmm. when we when we think about, you know, increasing access for people to use your product, I mean, I think that these companies are, are realizing, wow, you know, the more we really focus on this as a priority in our organization, the more people who are going to purchase and um, be loyal customers <laughs> um, to, to our products. Um, and, you know, that, that's one thing we talk about a lot with universal design. You know, we're not trying to, to educate people about something that only works for a small portion of the population. We're really talking about design that works for, for everybody. And, and that is just smart business thinking. Mm-hmm. And I think to, you know, just to bring it back to something that I was thinking about in our class and, and to for anybody who's a clinician out there working to kind of bring it into, into practice, to just think about, you know, uh, the time before iPads when there were, uh, you know, a bunch of different devices for, you know, language and for text to speak. And, you know, it depended on whether or not the family could afford it and high tech options and low tech options. And now the idea that you can give a child an iPad which their friends are using too, which isn't something that is going to, you know, stick them out from the crowd, which people in their community and kids and their peers are going to think, you know, this is this is a cool piece of technology. This is something I can relate to um, is 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 in my mind such a difference. You know, it, it must make such a difference in these child's lives to be able to interact with technology that their peers are interacting with and other children are interacting with uh, and give them, you know, more of that socialization that we know is so important for their development. Um, so I, I definitely see that universal design isn't just, you know, research at the Idea Center or, you know, research at these tech companies, but it's it's in our schools and in the way we practice already. Oh, yeah. And, you know, another big field where the topic of inclusive design is, you know, hopefully gaining traction and, and becoming a part of the forefront of the conversations. We're moving into an age of technology in transportation where we're thinking about autonomous vehicles. This is an area of our research that we're looking into right now, but really trying to elevate the conversations about inclusive design um, to car manufacturers and companies who are are developing uh, automated vehicles because we already have a transportation system that used technology that didn't work for a broad 
you know, portion of the population. So we had to create separate, expensive, and not equitable services to try and meet the needs of a community who could not access our transportation system and technologies. And we have the opportunity now to think more inclusively, to think about and the lessons we've learned from our, our current transportation system and do something differently and do something with the technologies opportunities that we have uh, and create an, a more equitable transportation system. And I, I hope, I mean, I'm really hopeful that, you know, universal design can, can really be integrated into where we're headed um, in the, in the AV fields as well. Yeah. And that, and that brings up another point that it's not, you know, it can be on the community with community engagement that this kind of technology can really impact a person's life uh, throughout all of their domains. Um, I think I want to ask a question about the other side, and I'll bring a little personal story in this to give context. Uh, I am one of four siblings, so I have a younger sister, a twin brother, and a younger brother. And, uh, you know, growing up, my younger sister was hard as nails. Like, she, you know, only hung out with her, her brothers that she was a really strong person, but she did have two fears. The first was sharks. Uh, we live in Long Island, and it was always a fear of hers. And the second is uh, she would jokingly say, like, robots learning how to love and like we would we would harp on her because this was back in the 90s when you know we couldn't think about that we were too busy carrying our five pound walkmans to to school to listen to music um but now with uh, and i'm thinking specifically about the presentation of the google assistant the duplex program that was able to make a uh hairdressing appointment for somebody uh by you know calling in and having a real human voice with ums and ums and short stops to make it authentic um that technology is incredible but it also i'm sure for many people is is scary the idea of you know automated cars or people that sound like people but are actually computers um what would you say to people who uh this influx of technology and influx of uh ways that humans can interact with the world seamlessly scares them i think that we can't we can't move forward without really purposeful education and training that is paired with the advancement of technology. And, you know, even using more simple examples. So we think about technology in the home, say automated um, sinks or water dispensers or things like that, that, that are touted as, as universal design products that make it easier to use the faucet because all you have to do is wave your hand or touch the faucet um, to use it. And maybe we're putting these kinds of technologies in, in senior living communities or in retirement communities where people move uh, from environments that they've maybe lived for the last 70 or so years. Um, and this technology might be new for them. In some cases, we're seeing that people may neglect to use the technologies at all because they don't know how to use them or nobody ever gave them a demonstration. It was just assumed, well, this is easier to use so someone might know how to use it. Um, and I think those assumptions can be a little bit dangerous. And, you know, as we, as, as exactly you're saying, um, thinking about advancements in AI and the ways um, that, that, AI can, you know, learn our behaviors and, and those kinds of things, that's going to be a, a pretty steep learning curve for some people to understand and trust. 
uh, technology. And I think that we really need to be purposeful about helping people to really understand what they're signing up for or what they're participating in and how um, these different machines might be learning about our behaviors um, so that people can trust them or, or make, make knowledgeable and educated decisions to interact with them as they wish. Um, and, and moving forward, you know, I do think we're going to be in a technology environment where the choices to opt out are going to be less and less um, as we move forward. So we really do uh, need to make sure that, that we keep everyone informed along the way and that these processes are, are transparent for people to understand as well. And that's so well said. And I think that brings it right back around to the fact that, you know, occupational therapists, that's what we do. We train people in the use of technology and the use of adaptive equipment. And, you know, we know how to get around some of those those fears and those trepidations and uh, that that barrier to entry and learning curve. Um, so I'm happy that you, you brought it in that direction because I think it really brings us full, back full circle. Um, so if somebody, uh, a, an occupational therapist or clinician is looking to get into universal design more, maybe incorporate it into their practice, what resources would you, uh, give them to, to make that happen? Great question. So, um, I guess I first and foremost would, you know, point people in the direction of the Idea Center's website. Um, it does have a wealth of free resources that are on there as tools to learn about universal design, those eight goals of universal design that we've been talking about. Um, we also have a set of guidelines for public buildings and spaces called Innovative Solutions for Universal Design. And these are actual design guidelines, but they're organized in a way that goes through the design process and the people that need to be engaged in the design process along the way. Um, and I, I like to add, especially when I'm in um, populations of occupational therapists or, or groups of occupational therapists, is that it's not necessarily that you're going to go out and build a public building. Um, obviously, that's not usually within our scopes of work, but we might very well be asked to engage a community group to give input on a community-based project like that, like a playground or a park renovation, um, or you might be working at a hospital, and because you work in the rehabilitation um, portion of the hospital, they may invite you to give input um, on different design projects in the, the hospital campus. And it'd be really helpful to advocate for the use of universal design and, and this lens and frame of mind on behalf of a broader population, you know, given the knowledge and experience we have working with diverse populations. So this, those are a few tools that are, you know, completely um, free and accessible and available through our website, as well as, you know, multitude of of textbooks and um, different design resources that are that are available as well, um, and then you know I think it's also about continuing to getting to know diverse clients, friends, and um, people in your life, and um, you know the more we know and can understand and can maybe peek into people's diverse life experiences, the more we can really build um, a, a broader perspective or think differently about how we provide services. And, and this can range all the ways from thinking about the environment differently. You know, I've had people say that once, once we have this conversation about universal design, they can't walk into a restaurant in the same way um, anymore. All the ways to thinking about um, 
access to services in different languages uh, or you know having different price points to entry for different services and things like that that's all inclusive design um, so I also think you know maybe for us to broaden our perspectives when we think about this field um, that we don't just have to be thinking about built environment and home environment um, when, when we're thinking about how we might engage in the field. That's such a good call to action to, you know, just keep a broadened perspective to use those universal design goals outlined for free at the Idea Center uh, website and kind of think about just your personal practice and, and the, your areas of life and, you know, how people that you've met and uh, people that you are currently working with uh, can't interact in those environments. Um, yeah, no, that's that's a perfect call to action. <laughs> and. I'm sure there also might be some occupational therapy students that have been inspired by listening to this and are now furiously emailing their fieldwork coordinators to try to find a universal design experience. Is that something that you would recommend students do or would you uh, recommend uh, something different? When thinking about learning opportunities for universal design for OT students, um, I think that there's a couple of options, and, and I have a few perspectives on it. So I, I really encourage, if this is an area of interest, at the level one sort of level of exposure, where it might be across the course of a semester for a few hours a week each week, uh, or a concentrated week-long experience, to get exposed to unique different um, clinical settings or settings that are focused on universal design. The Idea Center is not the only place. There's Universal Design for Learning in Wisconsin. There are um, centers that are focused more on aging in California. There is a technology um, resources at Georgia Tech. There, there are a whole lot of people doing universal design work across the country. So I, I think there's a lot to explore. Um, all that said, there is... A, Nothing that can replace your three-month-long clinical fieldwork experiences after you graduate. Um, so when students come to me asking, can they do a level two experience with me at the Idea Center, I really have a, a, an intentional conversation with them to discuss what their goals are, what they're looking for to get out of it, because uh, the work that we do is really research-based, it's community-based, um, and, and it really is not the same type of clinical environment or clinical training that you get in a typical level two experience. And, and you can't get that after you graduate, right? When you graduate, you can't just ask someone, can I follow you around for three months <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> while you help me to become a better occupational therapist, you know, to hone my skills. So I always encourage students, you know, get the clinical experiences that you can while you're in school. You can always, you know, engage in the research process with your professors and your program. You can always, you know, reach out to different research centers across um, – across the nation to kind of learn more about their work and how you might get involved. Um, and, and I also, you know, I think this goes for any of your community-based um, classes and ex uh, volunteer experiences that you're required to do for community-based courses. Um, working with non-for-profit organizations and bringing in universal design as a learning experience for those organizations or creating tools for them, that's another way to really engage in this field and kind of get a feel for what would it be like to, to be doing this type of work in a community setting. 
um, to then be able to, to leverage your skills as an OT afterwards and explore opportunities to work in these settings. Um, on that note, maybe I'll, I'll just add, because I get the question a lot, is, you know, how would I get a job in this area? Um, and, you know, outside of academia or research-based um, worlds, I, I really think that it's more about looking for, looking for jobs that are doing the work, but those jobs might not necessarily be posted for occupational therapists, because you know, other, other community organizations or other design firms and things like that, they may not know that an occupational therapist is equipped with the skill set that they're looking for to be, a, you know, design research expert or to be a community engagement specialist or to be a program manager. Um, but, you know, I, I think occupational therapists can make an extremely strong case that we have the skill set to do all three of those jobs, um, but none of them may be posted as we're looking for an occupational therapist. So I do really think it's about leveraging our skill set and knowing how to communicate and articulate our skill sets um, in looking for those different types of jobs, if that's what your interests are. Brittany, that's such a good piece of advice for students to, you know, really look at what skills they're learning and uh, leverage those for positions that occupational therapists may not be traditionally in, but are definitely a good fit for the profession. Um, and I just want to thank you for, for staying so long on the podcast. I know we said an hour and we're a little bit over, but uh, I definitely appreciate you sharing your experiences with us and uh, all of the advice that you gave about universal design. I think there's a lot of value that's, uh, that's here for, for students and practitioners alike. Well, thank you so much for having me. I, I always enjoy talking about it and I enjoy talking with occupational therapists and occupational therapy students on the topic. And I'd be happy to field any questions. Um, my contact information is on the Idea Center's website. I'm happy for follow-up conversations uh, if people are interested. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you.